Hello and welcome back to Gallo Vault Sessions, a six-part podcast brought to you by Gallo Music in collaboration with Gonjo. This is the fifth episode of the season. In this podcast, we chat with artists, label execs, radio veterans and thinkers as we explore the backdrops and overlooked tapes from the Gallo Vault and reflect on the ways music shapes culture and how our culture has been shaped by music. In today's episode, we'll follow the way South African music has proliferated across the international stage and trace a few Gallo-affiliated artists as they and their music traverse the globe. We'll charter a flight with the music of Lucky Dube, Ray Piri, Solomon Linda and more and explore both the highs and lows of what it means for South African music and artists to contend with international audiences and global success and also tease out the different moments of both cultural exploitation and cultural appreciation in this landscape as we begin to wrap up the first season of the Gallo Vault Sessions podcast. We'll explore Paul Simon's Graceland and even learn about Jampeta sound system culture on the Caribbean coast of Colombia. Today, we will return to our conversation with Bra Lulu Masilela from the Boyoyo Boys and Mam Hilda Tlaubatla from the Mahotela Queens, both of whom we met in our previous episode, as well as former Gallo managing directors Antos Stella and Ivar Harbiger, and also meet two new voices, Edna Martinez, a DJ from Colombia, and the incredibly prolific composer, producer, and performer, Don Laca. But before we start our story, we have a quick note from our producer. It is important to note that much of the contemporary language of the recording industry continues to be influenced by South Africa's apartheid racial classifications and the South African Broadcasting Corporation's policies under the apartheid regime. We are aware that some of the language used by the guests in this series is outdated and in some cases pejorative, and we see it as our duty to critically unpack these nuanced connections so that we can imagine new language for the recording industry on the continent. In many ways, the stories that we've told in the series disrupt some of the many stereotypical assumptions we tend to have of race, culture, production, and even the construction of history in what is too often referred to as the Rainbow Nation. Indeed, the story of Gallo music is, in many ways, the story of a nation caught up in contradiction and possibility. What happens when international industry and audiences catch on to African, and in this case, South African music? One of these assumptions that the Gallo story really disrupts is the misconception that black people in South Africa did not travel, and by extension, influence the world, before the height of apartheid sent many of our artists and activists into exile abroad. But both the story of the success of the King Kong musical, which we heard about in our first episode, and also the story of Griffiths Motsielwa's recording and promoting black South African students in England in the early 20s, really disrupts this idea that African people are supposedly parochial. Let it be known that we have been traveling and finding slippages and strategies of possibility and mobility, despite oppressive power structures to create and influence the world since the beginning of time. In many ways, the story of talent scouts from the last episode also demonstrates this insistence. It's the Monday, it's just a day for everyone to go to church and pray. We would like to start our story off with a lesser-known name from Gallo Music's archives, a woman by the name of Dixie Guangua. She is singing the song we're listening to now, Easter Sunday. Like so many in the industry, she began her career in music when she became a member of her father's Presbyterian church choir in East London as a young child. She won the crown of Black Miss South Africa two years in a row and then landed a recording contract at Troubadour Records with Cuthbert Matumba at the age of 22. Dixie recorded as a backing vocalist for Dorothy Masuku and went on to perform as a Marabi and jazz pop vocalist who enjoyed success with both English and Zulu audiences and released her first album with Troubadour in 1959. 
It was also Troubadour's very first long play record they had ever released, which went on to be a huge success throughout Southern Africa. For the year following the record's release, she went on to lead an incredibly successful tour of then Rhodesia, current-day Zimbabwe, and Malawi. Let's listen to Dixie Kwangwa's I Left My Heart in Rhodesia, which was recorded when Dixie had immigrated to the UK. Right up until the 90s, the Southern African tour circuit offered a great opportunity for many artists to gain traction. A lesser-known function of these regional tours in Southern Africa is that they facilitated the smuggling of arms from neighboring countries for the underground structures of the ANC and the armed struggle against apartheid. Many tours would be arranged by independent promoters who worked in the underground network, booking artists to perform in Eswatini, Lesotho, Botswana, and so on. But one of the oldest and first songs to come out of Gallo to have reached astronomical international success is the 1939 song Mbube by Solomon Linda. Whilst the story has been told in great detail elsewhere, it would be a glaring oversight if we didn't also touch on it here. Interestingly enough, Solomon's original surname wasn't Jele, not Linda. Linda was his clan praise name, which he had adopted to be his surname. This is ex-Gallo Music Royalties Manager, Mike Swaratle. Well, what I heard was that uh, Mbube was recorded by Solomon Linda with the band called The Evening Bass. Ex-Gallo MD, Ivor Harberger. Solomon Linda actually, I think, worked at Gallo's in stores or somewhere like that. And he recorded a song called Mbubi. And somebody picked it up in the States and changed it from Mbubi to Wimowe. The story goes that it was actually Hugh Tracy who sent a pack of records to New York to try to get them picked up abroad. And amongst the pack was Linda's recording of Mbube. Incidentally, the song gets picked up and the music becomes something completely different, not just aesthetically but the very spirit of the music and its meaning gets lost. Mbube somehow becomes phonetically matched to Wimmoe for an American anglicized tongue and is sung by a slew of American bands, most notably the Tokens. This is the Tokens' version of the song. And from Wimmoe it became the line sleeps tonight. And the original backing of that song or the vocal group was taken from Mbubi. Gallo would have likely paid Linda some amount of money for the initial recording. In those days, session fees were incredibly low, but it turns out they never actually had the paperwork to lay claim to the copyright of Linda's original song, as was often the case in early label power dynamics. Once Gallo Music caught on that the song had become a massive hit with the tokens and they weren't receiving any royalty payments for the melody, they acquired a signature from Linda to sign over the copyright to the label. The prolific songwriter and producer, Don Laka. Someone Linda walked into the studio and he, the man doesn't read, uh, doesn't understand English language or Africans. He's from KwaZulu-Natal. He comes, he's a singer, he walks into the studio, records the music, comes and sign here. That's how someone Linda lost his music. It's been suggested by some that the signature was actually plagiarized, but at best, it's unlikely that he knew what he was signing or was instructed to sign, given the labor power structures working against a black store packer in a record label during apartheid. So eventually, I think in the 90s, was used on the Lion King. And uh, the song eventually became quite a big hit internationally. 
and a lot of people used the song for the show and for the movie. And the family started saying, where's the money? You know, here we are, we recorded the song and whatever. But in the meantime, the song had changed hands because the guys who did Wumaware wanted their name as well because there was Solomon and Wumaware, the tokens recorded it, this one recorded it, and uh, it was all over. And there were different publishing companies that represented everywhere. But in the meantime, the royalties weren't flowing through to, to the estate as such. There was eventually an incredibly complex court case between Linda's estate, represented by his three remaining daughters, and Disney for the usage of the melody, which eventually resolved in a settlement agreement. The amount of the settlement was never disclosed to the Nzele daughters, and currently, Disney does not pay out royalties for the use of the melody in The Lion Sleeps Tonight. There's, there's so many stories that are, you know, just horrific, you know. For an in-depth view of this and an illuminating take on the various stakeholders implicated in this unfortunate turn of events, including Gallo Music and the South African Department of Arts and Culture, check out the documentary film The Lion's Share. As our previous episodes have shown, the local market in South Africa was incredibly lucrative. Yet still, despite the sanctions placed on South African business under the cultural boycotts against apartheid, breaking an artist internationally presented huge possibilities, not just for the artist, but of course, for the label. Ivar Harberger. I used to say, guys, we can't go in with a rock act to America. America's got so many rock acts. How are we going to go and fight the Americans? We've got to go in with something different. And when I went and saw what was happening with Johnny Clegg in France, Johnny was absolutely enormous in that part of the world. And I think people here didn't realize how big Johnny was. You know, it was on, one song was on the charts for 15 weeks. Johnny Clegg was a Jewish South African musician and anthropologist who wrote and performed songs that mixed English with Zulu lyrics and adopted, and in many senses appropriated, traditional African music styles and fused them with Celtic and rock elements. He performed with the great Simon Nkunu in Juluka and Dudu Zulu in Savuka two unusual interracial musical partnerships for the time. The music aside, this as well as the image of a white man performing traditional Zulu dances and singing in Isizulu was a spectacle, especially in a context like France. MD of Content Connect Africa, Anta Stella. Let's talk about the French. So the French at that time were... were African music was massive. It's where, you know, Salif was finding his home. It was Manu de Bango's fun. Even Alpha Blondie was finding his home. Everybody was finding their homes in Europe because they were so well received, as was the music. And I think that that was also the beginning of the migration. I remember Johnny Clegg performing at Cannes. And he, from that performance, he got on to a promoter that worked, that, that saw the opportunity, as well as a record label. His record label saw the opportunity. I looked at it and said, you know, Gallo's not in France at the moment. We've got to really start looking at what we're going And we went and got hold of Mosh Latini in those days, who was basically down and out and with EMI. And uh, we called him in and we called the Motel of Queens and West used to produce at the time. And we said, we've got to get into that market. We've got to go in and try and fight that market and get uh, Mashlatini and the Queens. And they were a major success there. Let's hear Mum Hilda Tlaubatla from the Mahotela Queens speak about this period in their career. The first time that we went overseas to Paris and this guy, the promoter, came all the way from France looking for this band, Mashlatini and the Mahotela Queens, because our music was already played even overseas. The Queens, Mashlatini and the Mahona Totle band were invited to play a jazz festival in Paris. That was 1987, if I'm right. Mashlatini and them were still alive. Oh my God, and we were so excited. We were excited to say, my God, number one, the flight. <laughs> we're excited about the flight that, wow, at last we're going to be in a flight, we'll be traveling in a flight. First time that we're going to a flight, yes. And yes, from here we went straight to France, to Paris, to that jazz festival. Yo, and it was amazing for us. The stadium was so packed, so full. And it was amazing for us to see the white audience, only white audience, 
no black and we were like can't you what's happened they said no we don't have blacks <laughs> we only have two and three blacks and the white audience was so crazy my god they were all dancing all doing what and they too they didn't want us to to go off and to leave and unfortunately it's a festival there are a lot of groups that must come and perform and and promoters came from, from different countries cities to come and say we are going to want to see this group i mean you know, the explosion of johnny the explosion of the mautella queen's explosion was this visual like exciting breathtaking performance where the music really really worked as well you know the music just resonated whether it was one hit or two or three or four as antos speaks about the success of a distinctly visual performance on european stages One cannot help but think of the Mahotela queens wearing izikolo, the hat traditionally worn by married Zulu women, and traditional Zulu beadwork. Interestingly enough, when one looks at the cover photographs of the queens' earlier album, they are either wearing Western clothing or a mix of Western and traditional attire, but never with izikolo, as these earlier albums were almost exclusively marketed towards local Southern African audiences. And when we were to go overseas for our first invitation, that's when this idea came up with Western Coast of us wearing that. She said, guys, overseas, they are wearing trousers and shirts, and well, but our music is different. We've got different beat and different music, and our language is different. And so they need to see our music is a traditional song. So what we must do, we must wear traditional costumes. Then we started wearing our Azuli costumes. And for sure, it became the best. They were really amazed and really crazy out of our costumes because after the show, after they would come up to say, we would like to have your heads. Can we have your heads, especially the heads? Can we have your heads, these colors? Yeah. <laughs> Zulu traditional is the one. And we made it popular. We made it known, popular, very much popular. Given the reality that the Queens, like many artists, never actually had much direct contact with their label, but rather dealt with their producers, in this case, Rupert Bopape and West Ngosi. It's difficult to know if the idea was really West Ngosi's or if he was responding to and relaying the directive of Gallo, and in this case, Iva. Elsewhere in our interview with him, Iva mentioned how he had been the one to propose packaging the visual aesthetic of Harari, for example, as a rock group with armbands and tassels. This sort of strategic essentialism and auto-exotification is not a new marketing strategy, and whilst complicated, often incredibly successful in packaging artists to audiences outside the African continent. What the West thinks of as African musicians and what African audiences expect from musicians aesthetically often doesn't overlap, especially in the early 80s. Gallo just were very, was really happy that there was someone who was prepared to do, be on the road with the artists and run the business at the same time. My job was to travel with the artists and do these deals. And we didn't have emails. <laughs> So then we managed it and the business was booming at the time. The phenomena that became not only Lucky, but Maklatini and the Mawatela Queens, the Soul Brothers. I have to trace us back to big music conferences around the world. And those were really where we used to physically trade songs, vinyl. We used to do license deals with people around the world. It wasn't all streaming. You know, we would just actually have to go and meet these people to do separate deals in order to get the music released. At that time, we had such strategic plans. You know, we would take the artists on the road. We would go and showcase at Medem. Medem is considered the leading industry conference for the global music community, which occurs annually in Cannes. We would have a whole strategy. We'd sit down and talk about this entire strategy because we didn't have the ease to be able to change things. You know, I mean, I've been in the middle of riots, you know, and had to think on your feet then, what do you do? How do you resolve this? What do you do to protect your artist? That is the kind of thing that we did at that time. And I think that's why we traveled with the artists so much is because the artists were our biggest asset. And so we needed to make sure It just became a little difficult when everybody was blowing up at the same time. I mean, that's why I spent so much time traveling. You needed to make sure that the artists weren't threatened or there wasn't your competition or an international label that was trying to sign up your artist in your absence. So we did it. Um, and I think it was a great era in music because we had to be there. Let's hear from Mum Hilda Tlaubatla about how the Queens and the Mahona Tzotle band toured with discipline. 
we wouldn't care whether we're in New York and say, hey, we want to go and see New York. How is New York? No, we're in New York. We are here to come and perform. That's all. After performing back to the hotel, even if we would be there at the hotel for the whole week, and we were happy about it. We didn't, we were not allowed. We wouldn't be allowed. Even our boys, even them, they wouldn't say we are free and we are the bosses, we are boys, we are going to the city, we're going to see, we want to see New York. No, they themselves stay in a hotel. As long as we're performing with them, it's, hi, these are Mautella Queens, this is Quincy Jones, this is who, this is who, these are the Mautella Queens. See them, how are you? I'm fine. I'm Ray Charles. And oh, I'm, happy. I'm happy to see you. I'm happy to see you, Ray Charles. Thank you. Bye, Ray Charles. Bye, Quincy Jones. Back to the hotel. Aye. Not that we're going to have a dinner with you. We're going to have tea and lunch. No. This is why at, at, at 80 years, I'm still alive. It's no surprise that the Queens toured extensively, performing alongside some of the biggest artists to contribute to the sound of US music in the 20th century. Richards, Stevie Wonder, hey, some of them have forgotten about yeah, Quincy Jones, yes. They had jazz festivals most of the time. So whenever, even if it's a jazz festival, but we would be promoted, they would say we would like to have that group to come over, even if it's a jazz festival. Unlike here, it will meet if it's a jazz festival, no, we wouldn't like to have Mpatang. But overseas, they were performed, they wanted us, everybody wanted us. Jazz festival or what? Michael Jackson himself, the sister to Michael Jackson, Janet Jackson. And all of them, whenever they were performing with us, they would say, my God, we'd like to perform before the queens because immediately once they go on stage then people wouldn't like them to go off on stage people loved us very much all over all over the whole world in africa also senegal nigeria kenya in addition to touring with the queens antos toured extensively with lucky dube across the african continent latin america the caribbean and also papua new guinea where apparently incarcerated prisoners broke out of their cell to go see Lucky perform. His global reach is perhaps unmatched as it was not just concentrated in the West. And Lucky at the same time had this message where he was really big in the States, but his music had like also overflowed to the Caribbean. You know, he had performed three or four times in Jamaica, so he would go. We, you know, the first thing we do is find him a booking agent, find him a record deal, let the record deal and the promoter work together, you know, and there was airplay. So there was still this synergy between promoters and record labels and that's hard work. And then the music made its magic as well. So let's not forget the music was the most important thing, but... It is the explosion of, of South African music. And whilst we talk about South African music, we must always remember that the rest of Africa had already kind of carved the way, right? Let's be honest. Fela, Femi, Salif, Manu, Angelique Kijo, Yusundo, they were all starting to enjoy big commercial hits now. Antos makes an incredibly important point about how the larger ecosystem of African musical success on the global stage and the growth of this thing the industry often calls world music really facilitated the opening up of the South African music industry internationally in a way that wasn't hinged on those musicians in exile. Of course, when sanctions were lifted in the early 90s, these artists just exploded on the tour circuits. <laughs> Another major South African player on international stages is Ladysmith Black Mambazo, who have been nominated for 10 Grammy Awards and have won five. When Wesson of course he came to me and he said, you know, this is fantastic Mbubi group in Durban and we must go down and we must sign the band. As a result of the success of Solomon Linda's song Mbube, the title became synonymous with the a cappella vocal harmony style before it was known as Iskatamiya. And we actually went to the SABC and we said to them, you know, you had this choir, Mbube choir, where do we get hold of them? We like them, we want to record them. And we went to, to see them, and the head of the, the group was Joseph Shabalala at the time. And I think we'd recorded the first album after negotiations with a contract, and we had the first recording we listened to was a recording made by the SABC. And then uh, from that, I was involved in Ladysmith's career for 37 years. And while I was there, they never left Gala. You know, they were in Booby Group, 
and to expand them internationally, we need to let them hook on to something that was a little bit bigger. I was very involved with the Paul Simon album, uh, putting them together with Paul. We'll get back to Paul Simon in a moment. But in 1997, Gallo Music solidified an incredibly successful feature with Dolly Parton on Ladysmith Black Mambazo's rendition of Knocking on Heaven's Door. Take this badge off of me a couple of songs with Joss Groban and uh, they sold in the millions and uh, you know we did a Michael Jackson track and we did certain things with uh, Ladysmith. The same year as their collaboration with Dolly Parton, Ladysmith Black Mambazo did a commercial for Heinz. In 97 I went back to London seven or eight times when Mambazo um, did their first Heinz baked bean synchronization deal because they were there doing those promotions back and forth, back and forth. A sync deal is a process where songs are combined with moving images, film, TV, video games, advertisements, etc., to maximize the exposure of a song, and by extension, the artist. They're usually arranged between a music publisher and a film or advertising producer. As we know, synchronization is one of the most lucrative parts of the business through publishing. Mombaza were really an international um, famous, and I think they'd already won a Grammy or two by that stage. And the agency in a more remote part of the UK had decided they wanted to use the track in Kanyezi Nazazi as um, synchronization to sell Heinz products. Heinz had said they were looking for a song that would just make everybody feel warm. So they piloted the song in a small remote region of the UK and it took off. The 1997 advert shows a mother feeding her kids a piping hot soup of Heinz baked beans for dinner after a long day in a cold rural English coastal town while the song Inkanyezi Nezazi plays in the background. After they enjoy their meal, the kids sleep soundly and the mother has a loving sense of accomplishment on her face. At the end of the advert, the screen reads, Eat well, sleep deeply for tomorrow comes and it's all yours. The text is quoted as being a quote-unquote ancient proverb. So that is exactly how music breaks internationally. And that spurred that album, The Greatest Hits of Mombasa, to sell over a million units in the UK alone. It always used to amaze me is that everybody knew the words to uh, the star in The Wise Man in Kanyezi Nozazi, and it was just a perfect marriage, the music and... You know, if you if you go back and look at that ad, you can just see why. And I remember Universal sending me the, the research on, on why people related to the song, why people bought the CD. And it was all around people just not understanding the lyrics, but the sound resonating in their hearts. And that was what Mambaza was all about, right? I mean, I saw them at the Royal Albert Hall and I was just couldn't believe it that you know, there were audiences going up there and dancing with them. It was just an, an incredible, yeah, and they still do. They still perform. Sold out audiences across the, the world. What's really incredible is that Joseph Shabalala, and now his estate, receives composers' royalties on almost every Mambazo song, and Shabalala insisted on being listed as a composer throughout his career. But okay, now back to Paul Simon. In 1986, 11 years prior Mambazo's sync deal with Heinz, Paul Simon broke the United Nations cultural boycott and came to South Africa after experiencing a period of creative depression and hearing a bootleg tape of accordion jive hits by the Boyoyo Boys. He came in the hopes of incorporating the sound into his next studio album, 
He tracked down Gallo Music and Lulu Masilela from the Boyoyo Boys and recorded the song Gumboots, co-composed by Johnson Mkalali and Lulu Masilela. The song came out on Simon's You Can Call Me Al single from his forthcoming album, Graceland. I was having this discussion in a taxi heading downtown. Rearranging my position on this friend of mine who had a little bit of a breakdown. I said, hey, you know, breakdowns, common breakdowns, go. So what are you going to do about it? That's what I'd like to know. After this initial trip, Paul Simon returned to South Africa with intention of recording more material for his album. And somehow, Ray Piri, the frontman and guitarist of the group Stimela, ended up working with Paul on the record. According to Bralulu, Simon was somehow misled to believe that the Boyoyo boys were no longer together. Don Laka. Uh, Graceland, I mean, I sat on, on some of the sessions there because most of my friends were recording there. Bagiti Kumalu. I was sitting there when they were recording, you know. I had to hang out at studios, you know, at, at Sadbell Studios, by the way. That, that's where it was. I still believe that Ray got the raw deal on that album because the music that he created was not credited for. Call Me Air is complete Ray. It's complete Ray's leak. It's complete Ray. You know, not only that, on many songs. When Even when he did the, the album in, in, in Jamaica, he was doing the same thing. He would take people's music and say it's his music. To say that the Graceland album was a success is a major understatement. It became Simon's most successful studio album and won the 1987 Grammy for the Album of the Year alongside a number of other major awards, with songs with official features by the Gaza Sisters and Ladysmith Black Mambazo with the hit Homeless. Of course, there are many South African session musicians on the album, and it put Isitkatamiya and Mbakanga on the map in the West. Following its completion, Simon toured alongside South African musicians, performing their music and songs from Graceland, and every South African artist on the Graceland tour was affiliated with Gallo Music. Ladysmith Black Mambazo, Ray Piri and Stimela, with guest features from Miriam Makeba, Hugh Masikela, filling up concert halls in Italy, in the US, the UK, Zimbabwe, the Netherlands and Australia. You know, I'll say to myself, if you took the South African musicians off there and the vibe on stage and the Ladysmith dancing and whatever and Ray Piri and whatever, I personally thought that the South Africans made that show. It wasn't Paul standing in front. He's a great composer, great musician, whatever. But behind the scenes of the guitars and the bass and everything, it was the South African musicians who made that record. And they were all signed to Gala. You know, they were, they were terrific. There's an argument that he put South African music on the map, which is a fact, but at what expense? I mean, we know today uh, Black Mambazo benefited from that. And by the way, when I walked in at Gallo, the first day, Blackman Bazo walked in at Gallo the same day also. <laughs> so, but what I'm saying is that, you know, we need to weigh the pros and cons on Paul's contribution or lack thereof. It's a, it's, I, I don't know how to put it. it it's, it's, it's a complex thing, the, what, what Paul has done. He's taken people's music, credited himself, but at the same time, he put their music out there. Some of them benefit to up to today, but uh, others just lost it. And, and, and I, I think we lost that great opportunity. As South African companies didn't take the opportunity to leverage on, on what someone has done. It's a double-edged sword for me. I mean, I, I, I really would say, you know, uh, so-and-so should have benefited bigger and that. But at the same time, look at what Blackman Boy is, you know, Steve Miller didn't take an opportunity. They had their own issues. They would have been huge at the time. Humasekela took an opportunity, even if it was big, but, uh, you know, it revived him. Uh, Miriam Makeba got revived again. You know, they were touring with Paul Simon all over the world. So, I mean, there, there, there were some spin-offs, I must say. 
Let's hear a quick word from our sponsors, and when we get back, we'll continue to chat through the nuance of cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation of South African music on a global scale. The Sowetan is a proudly South African news, lifestyle and entertainment publication that dates back to the early 80s with its roots as a liberation struggle newspaper. It is still one of Mzanzi's most influential platforms of trusted journalism with over 3 million unique readers a month, promoting social activism and celebrating excellence. Pick up a copy daily at your nearest newspaper outlet nationwide or log on to Sowetan Live and be a part of the rhythm of the nation. Gallo Vault Let's get back to the podcast. Welcome back to the fifth episode of Gallo Vault Sessions, a podcast collaboration with Gonjo. So far, we've gotten a bit of an understanding of what it took and also some of the cost of breaking South African music internationally. While we go through these various vignettes, it's essential that we keep in mind not just the racial and industry power structures at play, but perhaps more importantly, the economic and geopolitical power structures in which these various deals and collaborations took place. Let's hear from Lulu Masilela about the experience with the Boyoyo Boy song, Buleng, and the aftermath of the success and mobilization of this song. All right. Now with the boy or your boys, I said, guys, let's record something different with the boy or your boys. Okay, in Bakanga, Ogen Jive, we are the kings. Saxophones, there's Thomas Pali, there's me, there's David Tewani, and so forth. Well, let's do the vocals. Then we went, then that's how a, 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 a pulling came in. We recorded the pulling. That was myself, Petrus Maniele, Daniel Villagazi, and the late Aaron Jack Leroy. And the song became a hit, not very big. Then now, after it went down, there came Malcolm McLaren. Malcolm McLaren was looking for Lulu Masilela and the Boyoyo boys. All the way from Britain came to South Africa. Mm-mm. Malcolm McLaren was an English promoter, clothing designer and musician, probably best known as the manager of the UK punk band The Sex Pistols and the New York Dolls and the partner of the luxury clothing designer Vivian Westwood. In South Africa, he's best known for stealing music. By then, I was working as a producer and talent scout for Defon. Defon, a subsidiary of Teal and ultimately Gallo. This is Bralulu, accounting his first interaction with McLaren. Hmm. Here comes Malcolm McLaren. You know, he's wearing funny, funny, like he was wearing pajamas. Honestly, hmm. he came in. What do they used to call it, this, that kind of uh, wearing? Punk. Hey, man. Hey, man, dude, how are you? I'm okay. I came across one of your songs. It's called Bullying. So Malcolm said, man, I want to, to use the punk, what's the name, on this Bullying. What do you think? I said, tell me a story. He said, but you know what? As long as I'm here, we are going to share the hotel. I'll pay, pay the hotel, then just get the rhythm section for me, and everyone will sleep. We'll, we'll all sleep at the Carlton Center, one of the biggest hotels. At this time, the Carlton Hotel was the luxury hotel. Then we spoke almost the whole night, planning. Mm, mm, planning, planning. Then, then I said, okay. Then, what do you want us to do on Pule? What kind of a dance are you guys overseas going to be doing? He said, punky, punky. And then, after that punky, then he came with another style. I said, okay. Then he said to me, there's a sound. Youngsters are jumping, skipping rope. 
I said, a jumping, skipping rope. He said, yes. Malcolm suggested using the sound of a skipping rope. In the early 80s, double Dutch skipping had become a popular street activity for African-American girls in New York City and was strongly associated with New York hip-hop culture. He said to me, what do you think? What do you suggest? I said, okay, as, as a boxer, I'm fit as fiddle and football player. I said, listen, Malcolm, if we can add on recording the sound of skip and rope, he says, sound of skip and rope? When your guys to use guitar, I said, uh-uh, let's try something different. Skip and rope. He said, and, 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 and then what about time? I said, as a boxer. Then I went to the car. My gymming system was there. Then I came having my skip and rope. Then I said, listen here. Then I started skipping. I say, this sound, don't you think this sound could work? Apparently, Malcolm felt that something was still missing, and Lulu suggested adding an additional jump every four skips to disrupt the rhythm of the rope cutting through the air. Then I started. He said, good, let's go to the studio. Same time, that was 2 a.m., we went to the recording studio. And then, 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 Double Dash became a monster hit, a skipping rope. And if you could see, have a look at uh, those American youngsters dancing for the skipping rope, my sound, it goes much faster than theirs. In Lulu's terms, the song became a monster hit. Double Dutch went on to become a top two single from McLaren's first album, Duck Rock, which was certified silver and, of course, completely failed to give credit to any of the South African musicians who featured on the record, including the commission of any producers' or songwriters' credits to the Boyoyo Boys. According to Lulu, he was only paid once for the recording and never received composer royalties for the song. Eventually, McLaren was sued by Gallo's legal representation. A UK judge froze McLaren's royalties payments and the case was settled out of court. However, the size of the settlement remains undisclosed. I still don't understand. I still cannot understand why the percentage that we got out of uh, Double Dutch, why must it be that little? In the meantime, we are not the company owners. And we wrote the whole song. So, uh, 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 you know, <sighs> the mining that I got from pulling was 8,000 rand. The song is currently listed as written by Malcolm McLaren, Trevor Horn and Petrus Manelli from the Boyoyo Boys, the songwriter of the original Puleng. Last episode, we played you the song Zoti by the Boyoyo Boys. The flip side of the Double Dutch album was nauseatingly titled Zulus on the Time Bomb. The central hook was taken from the song Zoti. This is the track. We also feel sick. He also plagiarized three songs from the Mahotella Queens for both his own album and that of one of his artists, Bow Wow Wow. 
the big issue that I have right now, and it's not no different to the issue that I had 37 years ago when I started in the industry, is that we are allowing international people to colonize the music industry in Africa again, and it pisses me off no end. And respectfully, sure, it's a business, but the truth of the matter is we have to retain the IP of our business on the continent. Do you know, it's like we are all the rights. The rights need to come back to where they firmly belong, and that's with the family and the legacies. Indeed, cultural appropriation, the whitewashing and theft of African cultural production is a tale as old as time. Let's cross the Atlantic Ocean and dive into the Caribbean Sea. One of the most historic port cities of Latin America is a city known as Cartagena de Indias, on the Caribbean coast of Colombia. As a former Spanish colony, it was a key port for the export of Peruvian silver to Spain and for the import of enslaved Africans under the Asiento system into Latin America. On one of her many tours with Lucky Dube, Antos went to Cartagena and met with the Colombian record labels who had acquired the license to distribute Gallo music records in the Latin American region. I was also taken back I mean, at that time to hear you know, that the Soul Brothers and, I mean, that this music had reached as far as Cartagena, Colombia. I mean, I, I guess tracking back and looking at the audience, I wasn't surprised. You know, music travels. If, if there's a message that's going to travel, it's going to be music. Music travels so fast. How big it was, I only realized when I got there, having been stuck in Bogota Airport for nine hours with a stomach bug. <laughs> like he was pushing me around in a trolley with all the band jackets wrapped around me. At that stage, there was a lot of piracy in Colombia as well. So we were very cautious on who we would sign to. And that is why there were a lot of meetings going back and forth. And we eventually met with pirates that had legitimized their business because they had told us that there was so much, showing us photographs of all of our content being pirated on vinyl. Uh, we always used to say, if it's pirated, it's a hit because people want to hear it. The Colombian record label used to come to South Africa and make us sign the contract. And on as part of that, they used to take a photograph of us signing the contract and put it on the back of the LP. The guys that we had done the deal with picked me up and taking me through the markets. I went into these markets and I was just completely gobsmacked, completely gobsmacked and showing me what was legit. And then I realized that the reason why they were trying to do the photographs and that to show that they were the legit licensors of, of the content at that time on vinyl and cassette. It then obviously created this really healthy touring circuit for the artists. And it was through the radio stations, radio and word of mouth, that, that the music crossed into Latin America. What Antos missed, though, is that South African Mbarkanga didn't just cross through radio and word of mouth, but also through a far larger and more established community-oriented network of sound system culture along the Afro-Colombian Caribbean coast that is deeply invested in the collecting and sharing of African and Afro-Caribbean music. To find out about these sound systems, or PICOS, we chatted with Edna Martinez, a DJ from Cartagena, where South African bubblegum and Mbakanga holds a central resonance in the scene. My name is Edna Martinez. I am from Colombia, from Cartagena, the Indias of the Colombian Caribbean. And I'm an artist and also a DJ and curator and researching about different sounds and history of the because sound system culture and also migrations of this part of the coast. Part of this, the results of these investigations, you can listen in my sets. Lucky for us, Edna is the featured DJ for Conjo's curated mix for this episode. The most famous sound system culture is from Jamaica, I would say, no? It's more like well-known, but there is also a sound system culture here in the Colombian Caribbean that still is very, very underground. It's not that famous, but it's also very interesting because it's not only about the sound system, it's also about the music and all the history of the how the records, especially African records and from the Caribbean, they came into the country. And so that this culture started like 
around the 50s with music from the the Caribbean, from Cuba, from the island, close. But in the 70s, they started to get more famous because of uh, the rise of different records uh, from Africa. Given the prominence of the Cartagena and also the Barranquilla port cities, records arrived on the coast from sailors, migrants and tourists between the 1950s and 70s on ships and were exchanged with local traders. The impact of African music at this time was huge. We're talking about music not just from South Africa, but also from Congo, Nigeria and the West Indies. People from here were also having like independent parties, more like street parties, more like from the neighborhoods, for the working class people, for, yeah, from the, let's say a little bit, uh, how do you say, not in the center of the, the main culture, what is promoted that really, but also important because, so they got, firstly, the sound system later, they got also this music, the different selections, and besides of that, they were also developing a proper aesthetic. The sound systems evolved into these huge mobile walls of speakers that were hand-painted with brightly coloured images relating to indigenous and Afro-Colombian culture and history. Each sound system or pico with its own name. And these sound system communities started throwing parties in popular neighborhoods on the peripheries of a deeply racially and economically segregated city. Each sound system developed their own community-based following and developed an underground culture that is now referred to as jampeta, a culture, a music genre, and dance. Each sound system is like, let's say, like a totem for this community. And each of these sound systems were promoting music, mostly from Africa, from the Caribbean, and even, even beyond, actually. There were also music from India, really wide spectrum, but not related or not compromised with the radio stations. It was very independent. And it's still like this. It's still going on. So you still have the possibility to visit this part here. Some sound system in some barrio, it's like neighborhood playing like Soweto music or Miriam Akeva, Soul Brothers. Of course, in Colombia, folks have no understanding of the lyrical content. And so they would phonetically match the Isizulu lyrics to Spanish words. This song, Autule Gangane, by the Mahotela Queens, is known as La Mua. What it means in, in, in English, like people who cannot talk, how do you say the mute? Someone who has this, this capacity to talk. Like, but it's only because they say, mua, mua, And so, in addition to popularizing the original songs, collecting records, and phonetically matching their titles to Spanish words, Part of the culture involves taking the original rhythms and producing songs with lyrics in Spanish and adding DJ Casio keyboard sound effects onto the rhythms. Let's hear the Champeta version of Autu Legangane by the Mahotela Queens. This South African music in particular arrived at the Caribbean during the 70s from the Boca Chica Island. The Sunset culture, as I say, it's like very, it's very bright. You can listen to different rhythms and, and genres from music from Africa and other parts of the world. But especially South African music is located to the island, close to Cartagena, Boca Chica. The South African music is also called here like Boca Chiqueros. Like they are from Boca Chica, you know, that's like Boca Chiqueros. And 
interesting because uh, in Barranquilla, for instance, they are not there. They don't listen that much uh, South African music. They are more uh, really in other rhythms, more like Congolese music, more like Cameroonian uh, high life, the Nigerian high life. But here in Cartagena, especially in the islands, that's the South African music that were, they were very famous here. These rare South African records were then taken from the island of Boca Chica to Cartagena by a DJ of one of the biggest sound system picos in Cartagena. El Conde. The goal was always to be the pico with new and rare music. Innovation is the name of the game. And El Conde was a very famous also because it was big, it was huge, it was like the most important pico from Cartagena. And it's also very popular between people from Palenque. Palenque is a historically black settlement a few hours outside of Cartagena that was originally formed as a maroon community in the 16th century by a former African king from present-day Congo and Angola who was sold into slavery and escaped the slave port of Cartagena. Palenque remains a strong site of Afro-Colombian resistance and culture along the Caribbean coast. This was also a way like, to find a connection with Africa and with with other readings, no? with the origins. Um, even if the people not, don't understand the lyrics, mostly because they came in another language, there was also the, the musical connection, the feeling. And Colombia is very classist, classist country and racist as well. And there are things like champeta that are really relevant to say there is a huge connection with Africa. And it has to be like recognized, not only saying, it's in the culture, it's in the, in the sounds, it's in, in the movements, it's in the body. There's a lot of resistance as well. It's independent because they were also outside of the radio. It's said that Palenque and the region more generally, with its own music culture and structures of heavy percussion and call and response styles, resonated deeply with the structures, aesthetic elements and traces in the South African music that emerged from the Picos in the 70s and 80s. It is this sonic resonance that facilitated the traction of Mbakanga and South African bubblegum into the region. In hearing Edna recount the importance of Jampeta and Picos sound systems, we can see the localized significance this music has played for folks in these barrios or neighborhoods. The important point to emphasize here is the role the broader culture played within the local society, beyond the capitalist metric of the record industry, as with the cases of Paul Simon's Graceland and Malcolm McLaren. Yes, there's competition between the different picos, but developing and resonating with the culture is the end in and of itself within communities that are already sidelined by dominant culture. Whilst the story of Lucky Dube's life is one that is already quite well known, perhaps the full extent of his international reach is often underplayed. Lucky Dube was huge. In 1992, Captured Live and the House of Exile registered combined sales of 400,000 in South Africa, with worldwide sales of 250,000 and 400,000 respectively. In 1996, Dubé received the World Music Award for best-selling African recording artist in Monte Carlo and performed alongside Michael Jackson, Celine Dion and Seal, just to name a few. The following year, Lucky flies to Ghana to receive his award for International Artist of the Year from the Copyright Office and proceeds to launch Taxman in West Africa. Beyond his success in simply selling records, Lucky's power was really in his ability to resonate with his audience. And of course, he was doing this in a moment where reggae as a genre was enjoying its own global rise throughout the 80s and early 90s as the medium that carried the message of freedom for the politically oppressed and historically dispossessed. Lucky was no different. He might have been singing from the conditions of life under apartheid, but his message of freedom traveled far and wide, 
all the way to remote desert communities in central Australia, home to a significant Aboriginal community. It's said that the popular desert reggae scene was heavily influenced by Lucky Dubé's lyrical style, the way he sang about politics, the police and the government. With the arrival of his tapes in the 90s and his success on the First Nations radio station, CAAMA. This is Wati Kuju by the Chupi Band, a Central Australian Indigenous band from the community of Papunya, Northern Territory. Absolute legends in Australia's desert reggae circuit, who credit Lucky Dube as their strongest influence. The true impact of Lucky Dube's music on remote Australia really hit home when he toured the central regions in 2005, starting in Alice Springs, then playing in Darwin and Kyrens to thousand-strong audiences who had travelled hundreds of kilometres from remote communities, all excited to see Lucky perform his songs of freedom to an audience who had been facing similar struggles of land dispossession, systemic racism, economic exclusion, and enduring crisis of alcoholism. It's said that Lucky's most popular song, Slave, is not just about slavery, but actually about being a slave to alcohol. Let's give it a listen. Lucky continued to tour right up until his untimely death in 2007, and the ripple effects of his tour in the territory can still be felt to this day as desert reggae continues to be the dominant music in the area. In Central Australia, Lucky remains bigger than the Beatles. To hear more about Lucky Dube's influence on the indigenous populations of Australia, you can listen to the ABC podcast on the topic. Indeed, with Gallo artists' impact on both Jampeta and desert reggae, we can see that it is always a question of power, cultural and economic hierarchy, and sincere resonance that allows us to navigate the blurry lines between cultural appreciation and cultural appropriation. Thanks for listening to Gallo Vault Sessions, a limited podcast series in collaboration with Gonjo. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and also learned something new. Next month is our sixth and final episode of the season. We're sad too, but before we say goodbye, we'll take a look at South Africa's music through transition, 
not just politically with the dissolution of apartheid, but also with regards to technology, language, and genre. Today's episode was researched, produced, and written by Zara Julius at Gonjo, with production support from The Good People, and narration by Kaneta Kanutu. Our theme music is the song Doi Doi by Marumo, and you're listening to Kansas City by The Movers. Special thanks to today's guests, Bralulu Masilela, Mamhilda Tlaubatla, Antostella, Edna Martinez, Iva Harbiger, and of course, the incredible Don Laka. Be sure to listen to this month's Gonjo Curated Mix by Edna Martinez, which takes us through the Gallo releases that made it into the Pico sound system in Colombia and follows them with their Colombian Jampeta version. It's amazing. You can find a link to that in the show notes and on the Gonjo Mix Cloud. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. And please also review and give us five stars or however you rate this podcast. We love hearing from you. Gallo Vault Sessions, a podcast collaboration with Gonjo, with new episodes and curated mixes monthly. <laughs> <laughs>